Yeah, it is. Um, Romans chapter 3, we're going to pick up, we're going to start reading at verse 9. I was watching a, um, an episode of House a while back. It's one of the, the shows I DVR and keep up with. And on this particular episode of House, there, the, the patient of the week, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with, was this 18-year-old kid that they had brought into the hospital. And he had two siblings. And one of them was 10, and one of them was 6. And his parents were dead. And this guy's life consisted of going to work at Chuck E. Cheese and then taking care of his 10-year-old and 6-year-old siblings every day. And so they run all the tests, and they're trying to figure out what wrong, what's wrong with them. And they finally decided that whatever it was could be taken care of with a bone marrow transplant. And fortunately, his younger brother was a perfect match. So problem solved, except the 18-year-old doesn't want to go along with the operation. He says that he was worried for his younger brother's well-being. Uh, if you watch the show, you know that Dr. House is rather uh, skeptical of human nature. So he thought for sure that there was some self-serving interest that the, the older brother had in refusing this um, bone marrow transplant. And so he lies to him and he says, look, we found another donor who's a perfect match. Your brother doesn't have to have the operation. This other guy will do it. Everything will be taken care of. And the guy still refuses. Now, here's what was going on. He could have the, the transplant. Everything with his life would be fine. Or he could refuse the transplant and he would still live uh, but he would be so sick that he wouldn't be able to take care of his siblings any longer. And basically what had happened was that he had come to the point in his life where he was sick of taking care of them and he really couldn't take it anymore. And he said, rather than be made well and have to take care of my siblings, I'm going to stay sick so that social services is going to have to come in and take care of them. Uh, and I'm off the hook in, in terms of that, even though it means I'm sick for the rest of my life. Uh, and so House feels like his view of human nature has been, been vindicated. See, this guy's just self-serving. He didn't want to take care of his siblings anyway. One of the other doctors, Dr. Foreman, isn't so convinced, and this is what he said to the guy. He comes up to the 18-year-old kid and says, you're making a mistake, but you're a good kid. And one day, a few months from now, you're going to realize that all the sacrifice is worth it. And you're going to have that transplant. And you're going to be a good dad. And you're going to make your parents proud. And you're going to be proud of yourself. Now, here's my question. Who was right? Was Dr. House right? Is everybody at the end of the day just sort of self-serving? Or was Dr. Foreman right? Are we all basically good people who occasionally make bad choices. Which one of these had the better view of, of human nature? Now, no matter which one you think is right, and maybe you think neither of them are right, uh, but, but no matter which, you can't escape the fact that there's something wrong with the world. That there's something wrong with people. Uh, whether that's... You can, you can see it in the news every day. You know, just take your current events... Uh, whether it's the riots in Greece, whether it's the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, whether it's simply crime and poverty uh, in Spartanburg County, whether it's messed up relationships in our own families, we can see without too much effort that there's something wrong with the world. I mean, everybody gets this, whether you're 
uh, a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, you get a sense that things uh, are not right. The question is, what's wrong with the world? And what do you do about it? That brings us to the book of Romans. Uh, The book of Romans is a letter that was written by a man named Paul to a group of folks in Rome in the first century. The people he was writing to was a mix of um, Gentiles, or non-Jews who had been become converts to Christianity, uh, and to Jewish converts to Christianity. And he was writing them to kind of flesh out some of the basics of the Christian message. Uh, the first three chapters, really, of Romans, he's been explaining what's wrong with the world. And what it comes down to is that there's something horribly wrong with us. And that's we've seen that for several re- weeks. I've told you, uh, those of you who've been here, that there's a lot of bad news at the beginning of Romans before you get to the good news. And this is the last week of the bad news. Um, but it's probably the worst of the bad news. So, uh, Romans 3, verse. I'm going to start at verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that you've gathered us uh, here tonight, and we thank you for your word. And we know that uh, some things in your word are difficult for us to hear, and this is one of those passages. Uh, So I pray that by your spirit you would, would speak to us, Uh, and that you would convince us of the truth uh, of your word and the truth of what it says about us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Paul's answer to the question, uh, what's wrong with the world, you could sum it up in one word, is basically sin. Uh, That all people, and he says here both Jews and Greeks, meaning both Jews and non-Jews, and if you follow, if you go back and read through uh, the, the chain of argument in Romans, he starts in chapter 1 describing the sin of mankind, how we worshiped and served the creature instead of the Creator. In chapter 2, he says, religious people, if you think I'm just talking to the non-religious people, I'm actually talking to you as well. And then chapter 3, he kind of comes along and he says, look, everybody, all of us, are under sin. Now, what does that mean? Sin is, is a word that in a lot of ways has kind of fallen out of use. Uh, our popularity in our society. So let me ask kind of two questions to help us dig into this. Number one, 
what is sin? And then secondly, what does it mean to be under sin? What is sin? What does it mean to be under sin? And then thirdly, why is believing what the Bible says about sin actually good for us? Right? As bad as it uh, paints us. What is sin? What does it mean to be under sin? And why is believing that actually a good thing? So first of all, what is sin? Uh, if you want to just jot this down and look at it later, 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 4, very short uh, bullet definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's an old catechism our church uses that says, sin is any want of conformity to our transgression of the law of God. Uh, God has established laws, and if you can think of the Ten Commandments like this, as laws that show us how to love Him and show us also how to love our neighbor. Uh, Sin is the breaking of those laws and, and thereby failing to love God as we should and failing to love our neighbors as we should. So that's one way to think about sin. Another way to, to think about sin, I, I take from, from Tim Keller, who's drawing on Soren Kierkegaard, and he defines sin in this way. Uh, sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from God. Now what's, what's that mean? Um, you and I are made to center our lives on God. He's supposed to, he should be at the center of what we're all about. If you think about the very first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We're made to put God first. To put Him at the center of who we are. To, to build our identity, who we are, on who He is. Now instead of that, what we tend to do is we build our identities on all sorts of other things. We find our worth in not in our relationship with God, but in a million other things. How successful I am, how good a businessman I am, uh, how well I communicate, how well I'm doing in school, uh, how good an athlete I am, how talented I am. Uh, we center our lives on these things instead of centering them on God. Uh, And these things, and we saw this a little bit in chapter 1, these things that we build our identities on and center our lives on instead of God, instead of serving us, we begin to serve them and they begin to dictate life to us. Uh, And we wind up being controlled by them. Life begins to spin out of control um, and, and really to be destroyed. Our relationships with other people are destroyed and we're left ultimately alone because we've built our identities on things other than God. It's another way to think about sin. There's a third way to think about sin. Uh, Cornelius Plantiga, and I know I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but he, he defines sin this way. A sin is any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. Sin is the tendency to commit sins. Sin is the tendency to commit sins. Okay, he goes on to describe our corruption as, as people as sort of like spiritual AIDS uh, where our immune system is completely broken down spiritually. It's deteriorated and it's just opened up to hordes of other, 
opportunities to sin. So there's a, another way to think about sin. Now finally, uh, a fourth way to think about sin from Woody Allen. Um, Woody Allen was once uh, in a relationship with Mia Farrow. And she had several children before they were married. And then they had children after they began their relationship. I don't know if they're actually married, but after they began their relationship. And then he left her for one of his stepchildren. Okay? There was a kind of an uproar. People were disturbed about this, understandably so. And his, his reaction was this. He said simply, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. That's just a, a perfect, I think, way of getting at the heart of what sin is. The heart wants what it wants. It doesn't matter what God may say about it. It doesn't matter how it may affect other people. It doesn't matter if other people get hurt by my desires. The heart wants what it wants. So, a handful of ways to think about sin. It's lawlessness. It's centering our lives on something other than God and building our identities there. It's doing or thinking or saying things that displease God. Uh, at the end of the day, it's simply the heart wants what it wants. So that's, that's sin. All right, if that's sin, what does it mean to be under sin? What does it mean to be under sin? Which is what Paul says uh, here in verse 9, that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now to be under sin, what Paul is getting at is that we are under the power, we're under the rule, we're under the reign of sin. That sin dominates our existence. We're under its authority. Um, it's, that's the real political party that rules our lives. Okay, It's the sin party. Now, before we're Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or whatever we might be, we're sinners. That's, that's the dominating force that rules our lives. And maybe the best way to understand that is simply to look at the picture that Paul paints here in these verses of what that looks like to be actually under sin. Um, first of all, being under sin means that our minds are affected. Verse 11, he says... No one understands. No one understands that it, when, it, when it comes to spiritual issues, we're blind. We don't have sight. Our hearts, uh, our minds are darkened. And this goes along, you might jot this down, 1 Corinthians 2.14 The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So sin affects our minds. Sin also affects our desires. Verse 11, again, no one seeks for God. No one understands, but also no one seeks for God. We don't want to find God. In the same way that a robber doesn't want to find a policeman. Uh, we don't. We don't want to find God. We don't want to go looking for Him. We prefer to hide from God. And people may say prayers because they want God's blessing. They want God's um, direction in their lives. Uh, they want God to show them what to do. But at the end of the day, none of us really want to know God apart from from His grace. None of us really want to know God. We don't want to seek His glory. We don't want to seek His face. 
We don't want Him to be the center of our thinking. None of us seek after Him apart from Him seeking us first. Uh, And we're going to come back to that point later uh, as we progress through Romans. But there's an old hymn called I Sought the Lord. And one of the verses is, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. That we are so affected by sin uh, that our minds don't work right and our desires don't work right. We don't want God. We don't have any use for Him. Uh, A third thing sin does is it affects our wills. Look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Okay, instead of turning toward God, we're continually turning away from God, saying we'll go our own way. Uh, Verse 13 and 14, sin affects our tongues. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Um, you know, sin of our, our speech, that's one of those sins that we tend to ignore. Uh, but, but the Bible won't let us do that. Uh, listen to a few verses about our speech. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Proverbs 11.12, Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Proverbs 10.19 When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Proverbs 20.19 A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. Uh, Like preachers. Uh, James speaks of the tongue being set on fire by the pit of hell, hell itself. So, when Paul picks speech here, when he, speak, when he picks the tongue, um, he picks a very good example to make the point of human sinfulness. Because it's one point where we all fail, where we all struggle, and it's one area where we don't really correct each other very often. Uh, we just sort of go along with what the other person is saying. Um, it's, it's much easier to go along than to say, I don't know if you should be saying that about that. Because... Often we don't even notice it because we're so used to doing it ourselves and we so enjoy what they're saying uh, about the other person. And so so Paul points this out and says, look, even your speech is affected by sin. So our minds, our desires, our wills, our speech. Now where does all this lead? Not very surprisingly in light of all that. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Now that makes perfect sense. If there are two people, and I want what I want, and you want what you want, then that's going to bring us into conflict eventually. That sin leads to a breakdown in the relationships between people and our competing Desires, We begin to fight and quarrel among one another. And then finally, look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That sin affects our relationship with God. And that's really the key and perhaps foundational to all of this. Uh, Because of sin, we don't have the proper fear of God. We don't have the proper honor and respect uh, of God. We have no sense about His greatness. We have no room in our thinking for thoughts about God. 
Now that's that's a picture Paul paints for us of what it's like to be under sin. It affects every single part of us. Our thinking, our speaking, our desires, our personalities, all of it's affected. Now we tend to think about sin as individual actions. He shot somebody. Uh, she stole something. Now those are sins, but the Bible's careful to say that those individual sins flow out of uh, a sinful heart, a sinful nature that we all carry around. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. Uh, King David said it best in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. See, according to the Scripture, there really is no one who is innocent uh, at the end of the day. That a child uh, in the womb may not have committed actual sins, but they still have inherited a sinful nature um, from their first parents. So, uh, from conception, we have twisted hearts. We have a sinful nature that doesn't want God, that wants to run away from God instead. And notice... Y'all enjoying this yet? Are you excited? <laughs> um, notice who this affects. It affects everybody. Paul says there's no one righteous. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. I mean, Paul's not. None of us get left out of this. That we all are under condemnation. We're all under sin. It's so bad that he even says there's no one who does good. That's a pretty strong statement when you think about it. There is no one who does good. There's there's no spiritual good in us. At the end of the day, um, spiritually speaking, that I'm bankrupt. All my deeds are worthless. Now, you might object to that and say, well, look, I got neighbors... I don't know if they're Christians. I don't. I don't know what they are. They're, they're atheists, for all I know. They don't. I don't know if they believe anything, but they do some good things. Um, they they they're working to to end poverty. They give money to to help the poor. Um, you know, they don't steal things. They 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 pay their taxes. They're good neighbors. They help old ladies across the street. Um, how does how does this? describe them? How can you say that there is no good in them? Now certainly um, in relation to our fellow men, there are things that we do, there are deeds that we do that can in some sense be considered good. Uh, Paul I think acknowledges this back in chapter 2 and you could look at this later where he speaks of the thoughts of the Gentiles that at times accuse them and at times excuse them because they've actually done the right thing in the given situation. Uh, There are times when people who don't even believe in God actually do the right thing. But in the ultimate sense of being pleasing to God, in the ultimate sense of that quote good deed being pleasing to God, all of our deeds at the end of the day are worthless. Uh, Because a truly good deed in order to be pleasing to God, not only does it have to be uh, good in form, it's got to be good in motive as well. Think about it like this. Helping an old lady across the street is one thing, but if you're helping her across the street because you know she's a multimillionaire and maybe 
she's going to give me a little cash because I helped her across the street. Or maybe if I do it enough times, she doesn't have any children and maybe I can wind up in her will. Well, then suddenly what appears to be a good deed in form isn't actually a good deed in motive. And for a, for a deed to be truly good in God's sight, it has to be done with the goal of bringing glory and honor to Him. It has to be done for God's glory and not our own. It's got to be prompted by a heart that actually loves God. And prior to be change, being changed by the gospel, none of us have hearts like that. Uh, we don't love God. Our deeds are not done with an eye to bringing glory and honor to God. So there's, there's no sense in which our deeds are good. Even what we call good deeds, the best things that we do, those are polluted by our motives and by our hearts. Isaiah put it like this in chapter 64, verse 6, All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And the Hebrew, that's actually menstrual rags. And so he's saying, when, 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 you, when you are presenting your good deeds to God, that's what you're in effect handing to Him if you think they're actually good. Because they're tainted by everything about you. Now, uh, let me give an illustration. Spurgeon's got a good illustration of, of a deed that can be good in form but not in motive. Let me read this to you. He said, Once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. Okay. It's a long time ago, so go with me. He grew a huge carrot and decided to give it to his prince because he loved his sovereign. When he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. It is yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman heard of this incident and thought, If this is what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give to me if I gave him a fine horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, You expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you are giving yourself the horse. You see the difference there in motive. Listen to what Tim Keller said about this illustration. He said, If you know God loves you in Christ that there is nothing you can do but accept His perfect righteousness, then you can feed the hungry and visit the sick and clothe the naked and do it all for God. But if you think you're going to get salvation in return for these good deeds, it is really yourself you're feeding, yourself you're clothing, yourself you're visiting. At the end of the day, even our good deeds... Paul says, are not good. And because of this, because of all this, not only are we under the power and the reign of sin, we're also under the condemnation uh, of sin. We're also under the guilt of sin. Or to put it another way, uh, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. That's where we get to um, in verse 20. Uh, you and I can't gain right standing in God's courtroom by doing the works of the law. Well, why not, you say? Well, did you hear what I just said? Uh, Paul says, this is who you are. 
You, you, there's nothing good in you. Therefore, you can't be declared righteous in God's sight by doing the works of the law because you can't do the works of the law. You don't do the works of the law. That's who you are. Uh, we're guilty. None of us have anything to say. We have nothing to offer in our defense. And, and Paul says here that, uh, verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped. We said, uh-uh. None of us have anything to say in our defense. So, what's wrong with the world? Paul says sin is what's wrong with the world. But it's not just somebody else's sin. It's your sin and it's my sin that is a problem with the world. There's a movie a few years ago, uh, Grand Canyon. Uh, And in the movie Grand Canyon, there's an attorney who's stuck in traffic and he's fed up. And so he decides to take a shortcut to get around the traffic jam. And he winds up, with every turn he takes, he winds up in the worst part of town. He just can never manage to take the right turn. So it gets worse and worse. And then finally, his fancy sports car that he's driving around in breaks down in perhaps the worst part of town. And this gang of hoodlums surrounds him, uh, but he's called a tow truck driver. And so the tow truck driver's on the way. This gang's here about to you know, beat him up, wreck his car, whatever they're going to do to him. And the tow truck driver finally shows up. And the head of the gang starts complaining to the tow truck driver, and what are you doing? This is our guy right here. This is our car. You can't come in here and help him out. You know, this, is, this is on our territory right now. And the tow, tu- tow truck driver pulls the guy aside, and this is what he says to him. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can, and that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. See, this this ugly description of life that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 3 is not the way things are supposed to be. Things are not supposed to be like this. Uh, If you read through the Old Testament, the prophets were constantly wondering when the day was going to come when things were not going to be like this any longer. They were looking to that day when the lion would actually lay down with the lamb. When the guy could go in and and help the guy's car, he could tow the car without worrying about getting beaten up uh, by the bad guys all around. To that day when people wouldn't make fun of you because of the clothes you wore, because of how much money you did or didn't have. To that day when you didn't have to fear going to certain parts of town at certain hours of the night. When we all lived in peace with one another and with God. A time of shalom. It's a Hebrew word. A time of universal flourishing and wholeness and delight. See, one of the reasons God hates sin so much is because sin interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Your sin and my sin interferes with the way things are supposed to be. And God gives us His law so that we can see sin and so that we can see the way our sin interferes with the way things are supposed to be and that we're accountable to Him for it. Verse 20 one more time. 
For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, there's one last person who might cry, but wait, God, I'm, I'm religious. I've got the law. Shouldn't that make me okay? And Paul says, look, the law is not there for you to take pride in having it. The law is there actually to expose your sin. The law is there to help you see the truth about your heart. The Ten Commandments are there not so you can check them off and say, I've been a pretty good person this week. But the Ten Commandments are there so that you can see how corrupt you really are. To show you that you really do steal. And that you really do commit adultery. And that you really do break the Sabbath. And that we lie and that we covet. And the law is there to show us really to cause us to despair and to show us that we have absolutely nothing to offer to God. That there is absolutely nothing that we can contribute to our salvation. That that even our best works are like those filthy rags in God's sight. And so what Paul is saying is, look, don't trust in your own ability to make yourself right with God. Don't think that you can, now that you've heard how bad you are, don't think that the answer is to somehow straighten up and fly right because you can't straighten up and fly right. The law is there to show us that we're sinners. To show us that I'm a sinner and that I'm what's wrong with the world. Now, all right, that's all very terrible, alright? Uh, rather rather depressing, but I won't, won't leave us there. Uh, there's a man named is actually... This is actually a very hopeful thing to believe about yourself. Okay? You're depressed, but this is actually a very hopeful thing to believe about yourself. Here's why. I just want to tell this story to make this point. A man named Albert Del Banco uh, was doing research on Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was going around to different AA meetings. And he wound up at one on a Saturday morning in an old church in the basement attending this AA meeting. And there was a guy there who was, he was dressed very nicely. He was a young man. And he was talking about his problems. And he said it became obvious as he was listening to this man talk um, that he was still very full of himself. Uh, it became obvious that he wasn't to blame for any of his problems. That the reason he was in this situation was because of what this person had done to him and the way this person had acted and the way this person over here had acted. Uh, he said this, he spoke of how he was going to avenge himself on all who had wronged him. His every gesture gave the impression of grievously wounded pride. All right, and it was very evident that, that a young man was kind of stuck in this place of trying to justify himself. Saying this this is why this is like this, and it's not my fault. And he was gonna never he, he was never going to get anywhere until he moved past that. Uh, Del Banco said he's sitting there and while this guy's talking uh, there was this dude sitting next to him with sunglasses and dreadlocks and dreadlocks and he leans over to, to Del Banco and he says I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem <laughs> I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem and this is what the author said he said that man took refuge in the old Calvinist doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. That pride is the enemy 
of hope. What he meant by his joke about self-esteem was that one can save was that no one can save himself by his own efforts. He thought the speaker was still lost, lost in himself without even knowing it. He was lost in himself without even knowing it. See, until you admit, until you and I admit that Romans 3 is not just theoretically true and not just sort of true for the world, but it is actually true for me, until we admit that, uh, we're never going to be able to see our own flaws. We're never going to be able to forgive other people. And we're never going to be able to, to receive forgiveness ourselves. Because it's only when you own up to the truth about yourself, it's only at that point that you're ready to hear the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only when you hear the bad news and really internalize and believe the bad news that the good news begins to make sense. I'm not going to get into the good news other than that tonight. If you're just dying for more, then keep reading in Romans like the very next verse. Uh, but, but we'll talk about that more next week. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, these are, um, these are hard words to stomach uh, to have someone say that, that we are sinners and that there's nothing good in us. But God, you're the one that says it to us. And so uh, I pray that you'd help us to believe it. Um, to know that there is nothing good, that there is no one righteous, no, not one, and that that includes us. And Father, cause us to despair of ourselves so that we will turn away from ourselves and turn towards You and seek the rescue and the salvation that is only available in Your Son. We pray it in His name. Amen. Mm -hmm. It was 37.45.